Hello Outpost. Due to some technical difficulties, the live recording of Westminster Confession of Faith Chapter 7 didn't record. So please enjoy this re-recording of that teaching. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the technology that allows us to connect with one another so that we can learn your word deeper. And so, Lord, impress these words upon our hearts, upon our minds, upon our mouths, that we may carry them with us everywhere we go so that we can glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm excited to jump in and cover Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, with you tonight. Because we get this opportunity to look at God's covenant with man, which is something that I really think we should be thinking regularly about. The covenant that God, the holy God, has made with us, his people, Israel. And if you know, a covenant is a legal agreement. It's a promise. If you live in a covenant-controlled community, there are rules, agreements, promises that are made. What color you can paint your house. How tall your bushes can be. God makes a covenant with us, but it has nothing to do with the color of our house, and it has nothing to do with how high our bushes can be, but it, but it is a promise. It's a legal agreement and a promise from God to us, and that's what we're going to study tonight. So with that, let's jump in. Paragraph one, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator— Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condensation on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. There's one thing to preface, I think, as we look at this paragraph, that the distance between God and man is not just a sin problem. It's actually a creator creature problem. That's because God is God and we are not. Yes, of course, we are image bearers of his but we are not God. We live within the boundaries of temporal space and time, and God lives outside of space and time. So by that very truth, there's a divide between God and man. That shouldn't be surprising, because God is God, and we are not. You see, man is to be obedient to his creator. There's no way that we could ever truly understand or grasp God. He's God, and we are not. How could we? Isaiah 40. 13 through 17. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Job 9, 32-33 For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us. Who might lay his hand on us both? Or Psalm 113, 5-6 Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on heavens and earth? See, this is why we have to use human symbols and words to describe the indescribable. I took a class, began a class with Dr. Peter Lightheart yesterday. It was incredible. And one of the comments that they said in the class was that all of our speech is actually metaphor because we describe physical things with sound. 
That blew my mind a little bit. But this is the very thing that we're going to touch on in our season in Advent here at Christchurch as we study James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, looking at the symbolism that exists in God's universe so that we can look at God through new eyes and look at his creation through new eyes. And you see, it's because of this, it's because of God's very kindness that it pleased him to voluntarily allow us That means he voluntarily gave us access to him through his covenant. He didn't have to give us access. We're the created. He's the creator because it is God that gives life and breath to all things. So a covenant that comes with God between us and God could only come voluntarily through God. Acts 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Family, God doesn't need anything from you. The relationship that you have with him is because of a voluntary gift from him. Paragraph 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Doug Wilson says that that works is probably the wrong word, since the rest of the confession uses the word life. I would agree with him. A covenant of life versus works. And, and he uses that because I think works can give the wrong connotation if you don't understand what is meant by works, which I know you do. You know that we're not saved by works. It wasn't that Adam was saved by works, but he was under a covenant of life that required obedience to God. And it was the lack of his obedience, the lack of the obedience of his oversight of of Eve that brought sin into the world. Eve's actions, the lack of obedience to God's rule and law. But it doesn't actually change the fact that this grace of God existed before the time of Jesus. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But it was actualized in Christ. And what this really means is that those who came before us were also saved by faith, not by works. Even though they lived under the curse of works, under the covenant of works, the path to salvation has always been the same. Faith. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Hosea 6, 7, But like Adam they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. And Genesis three ten, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. The result of the fall, Adam's nakedness is present. He hides their shame and there's guilt. Paragraph 3 of the Westminster Confession, chapter 7. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. See, man, because of the fall, can't keep God's law fully. It's not God's law that is the problem. You know that. And so the second covenant was because of their sin. God provides Jesus Christ the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate grace, 
and those who he provides him to, they are offered and they are ordained into life through the Holy Spirit. This has actually always been the same. One of the questions I asked at the outpost was, where is the first place in Scripture that we see the Holy Spirit? And it's right in Genesis 1. It's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Right? They're not two different pathways to a relationship with God, like one that was before Jesus and one that was after. It's always been the same Spirit. It's always been the same God. It's always been the same Jesus. It's always the same Trinity. But it was through the covenant of grace, through Jesus Christ's death, that the first covenant is repaired. It didn't nullify the law. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus removes the punishment of not being able to be fully obedient to God. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Romans 3.20-21 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. Paragraph 4. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. You see, the covenant of grace is set forth as a testament. You know what a testament is. You've heard of the term last will and testament. A testament is issued to heirs. As Wilson says, the fruit of the testament is directly related to the death of the testator. If the testator had good fruit, his testament will bear good fruit. We know this in our world. Somebody who is building an economy for a thousand generations will, in his will and testament, leave good fruit to those who come after him. Jesus Christ is the best fruit ever that God has ever provided, and you all are heirs. You are heirs to his inheritance, the testament. We are heirs to Christ because of his finished death. Hebrews 9:15-17. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Paragraph 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises and prophecies and sacrifices and circumcision and the paschal lamb and other types of ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins. And eternal salvation is called the Old Testament. You see, showing that the covenant has always existed. This shows that the covenant has always existed. It was fulfilled in Christ, but it existed before him. It was just administered differently during the time of the law. You see, we see promises of God. We see prophecies of God. No no modern day prophecy, folks, but we see the prophecies that point towards Jesus Christ. We see sacrifices, so much blood. We see circumcision. 
Ouch, I'm glad we we don't have to go through that again. Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. The uniting of Jew and Gentile into the new Israel through the covenant of Jesus Christ. See, the Paschal Lamb and other ordinances, they all served one purpose. You see, they weren't salvific in themselves. They didn't save people. What they did is they all pointed towards the true Savior, Jesus Christ, and they were sufficient for that time because it's actually all about faith. That's why they pointed to something greater, Jesus Christ, the one who would come to fully remiss people's sins, the final sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 3, 6-9 through 9. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. This should make it clear that why belief in Jesus Christ is required by all who are to be saved. Everybody who is to be saved, who is to have new life, must have faith in Jesus Christ. That's how it was then and is now. Our, our forefathers had faith. They had faith in the promises of the coming Messiah, the signs and the symbols and the prophecies. They had faith. They weren't saved by their works. They were saved by faith. All signs pointing to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, even the babies, in the cloud and in the sea and ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. All who were saved drink from the rock that is Jesus Christ. Everybody drinks from the same rock, Jesus Christ, those who are saved. Paragraph 6. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. You see, these are more than remembrances. The things that we do, especially the things that we do during our covenant worship renewal services, they are ordinances in which the covenant is dispensed. The word preached. That's why you have to go to church and hear the word preached. The sacraments given, baptism and communion. This is the reason that we participate in the Lord's Supper every single week. And family, it is more than just a remembrance. It is the fullness, the evidence, the spiritual efficacy to all nations. Jews and Gentiles gathered together, united as the true Israel. And it is the New Testament, but the same covenant. It's always the same covenant from the same God that shows itself differently now that we have Jesus Christ. 
heard recently some people say that Presbyterians extend the covenant out too far, and I think that's impossible because God's covenant with man has always been, and we experience it through the simplicity of baptism and communion. That's why we partake in this meal with Jesus Christ every weekend. It's a spiritual task. It's a spiritual event. Not because the bread and wine magically turn into Jesus's body and blood. They don't. But because it's a sign of the covenant. It's a way that we get to experience and partake in the covenant with Jesus Christ. He invites us to his table. Yes, we are to remember him. We are to remember his finished work, the final sacrifice, and what it has done for us to give us new life. The covenant that he provides with us, that he is a God who keeps his promises. But it's more than just a remembrance. It's an active participation in that covenant, coming to the Lord's table to taste and see that the Lord is good. Each week, we do this as we worship our triune God. And what an incredible free and voluntary gift from God to you. You see, through his covenant, you the true Israel are promised his eternal inheritance. This is the best testament ever available. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, new and eternal life with God, restoring what was broken and giving you the free gift of grace. No other religion has ever made a claim like this. No other religion has ever made a claim that God voluntarily makes a covenant with sinners, that he comes and sends his own son to redeem them permanently. God has made a covenant with you, his people, and it is an everlasting covenant, and it is glorious. And so blessed be our God, the true God, the God of all mercies, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for the everlasting covenant that you have made with us for sending Jesus Christ, your son, to die for our sins, for revealing yourself to us through your holy word, and for adopting us as your sons and daughters. And so, Lord, may we actively live out this covenant. May we live it out in our fingertips. May we live it out in our families and our communities and our workplaces and our politics, all of Christ for all of life. And so strengthen us, Lord, to do that not for our glory, but for the glory of your name above all names. And we pray for this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.